Welcome to one and all. It's really good to be here and it's really good to see you all from this vantage point. Uh, I trust that the Lord will uh, bless us this morning. Um, to those of you that are virtually tuning in, tuning in, there's a dated term. For those of you that are online, uh, virtually, uh, you can't, I can't see you, but hope you can see me and an equally heartfelt, uh, warm uh, welcome and good morning. Um, this morning. Before we get into the message um, moving forward, I'd like to take us back. Take us back to the date, March 22, 2020. Literally two years ago to the day, it was a Sunday morning, and I was standing on this stage before an empty sanctuary. It was the second week of the pandemic and our second Sunday of total lockdown. And here we are, two years later, later practically, wondering what's going on with our world. Who would have thunk that we would be two years later in this reality, in this context? How do we navigate through these difficult and turbulent waters? And truth be told, the church has not been exempt from the challenges that we face as a society, as a, as a culture, as a world, as a human race. Unfortunately, when we look at our, our church, we see that what it has been going through, particularly here in the West, is that it has been bleeding out at an alarming rate. Buzzwords like deconstruction of the faith, ex-evangelicals, Progressivism, cultural Christianity are talked about in circles here in the Western Church. And it's not only that people are leaving in droves from the Western Church. Even those that have stayed are experiencing the same kind of challenges that the world is faced with. Mental health issues like anxiety, depression, stress, um, individuals who are uh, engaged in substance abuse and domestic abuse, and on and on the list goes. Now, why is that? Why is the church, particularly in the West, the Western church, being faced with these challenges? Now, I want to preface whatever I'm going to say by noting that I said the Western church and not Westview church. That's important to note because I'm not painting with broad brushstrokes, saying that this is true of all churches and it's true of us as well. Well, I want to say this is a big picture view of the Western church, and in many ways, these are the, um, these are the truths that are coming out when anthropologists and theologians are looking at what's happening in our church here in the West. And the reality is there is a crisis of faith in the church. And equally, there is a crisis of non-discipleship that is taking place in the church here at the West. The church globally is doing very well, thank you very much. In the two-thirds world, in the developing countries, the church is growing in leaps and bounds. And we see brothers and sisters in Christ from whom we derive a lot of inspiration by the way they're living out their faith in these equally challenging times. So where do we go from here? The reason why I titled my talk this morning, Finding Life in the Midst of Chaos, is that this is common ground for everybody, 
whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're religious or you're not. I think a title like this could be seen in a TED Talk. It could be in different uh, venues, different cultural makeups. And I think this is because we all desire to find life, even in the midst of chaos like we find ourselves in our surroundings. We all want to experience life. And I think if we look at the challenges that are being faced with in the world or even in the church, everybody would nod their heads and say, yes, we desire to find life. Now, a lot of what I'm going to say this morning uh, I've gotten from uh, listening to this one individual, Mark Sayers. He is a, a pastor, an author, a podcaster from Melbourne, Australia. He provides some keen insights about the intersection of the faith with uh, global culture and cultural movements that take place. And uh, a lot of what he shares uh, talks about the challenges that we face uh, both inside and outside the church. Now, to understand where we are in our present-day context, we have to go back to the mid-'80s in order to paint a picture that will give us some kind of uh, understanding of why we are where we are here. In the mid-'80s, that was the world of Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in the Soviet Union, a time of glasnost and perestroika, It was the toppling of the Berlin Wall, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. And the world basically came into this global existence. Mark Sayer says that everybody in the world, whether they accept it or not or believe it or not, has an underlying uh, theology from which they live their lives. And the underlying prevailing theology of the West is what he calls the secular Sabbath. Now, what do we mean by the secular Sabbath? Well, let's backtrack a bit and look at what Sabbath meant in the biblical context. And for that, we go back to Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we see that from that point on, the poem outlines how following the six days of creation, God enters into his heavenly rest where he rested. And the rest that he experienced was not merely a rest from working, but it was also a rest from overcoming chaos, overcoming the formless and empty darkness that was over the surface of the deep. So God entered into his heavenly rest when he overcame creational chaos, created this creational temple, if you will, where um, he would inhabit the presence of his creation, almost creation being his great cosmic theater, where he would dwell in the presence of his creation. And Adam was also likewise invited to enter into his unending rest by overcoming the, the opposition of the serpent overcoming the, the challenges and the temptation of sin and entering into his rest where the temple would, the glorious temple of Eden would be expanded to the ends of the earth. Now the West is kind of borrowing this Sabbath rest by saying that we enter into the secular Sabbath when we likewise overcome 
the oppositions that we are faced with are internal and external enemies and enter into a secular Sabbath rest where we experience life and life to the full. Now, according to the biblical Sabbath, the temple space is occupied by none other than God. In the secular context, there is no God. So who occupies the center of the temple? None other than the radical, hyper-individual, the personal, autonomous self. That is the individual that occupies the center of the, of the temple. Now, what are the internal and external enemies that uh, was required to overcome in order to experience this secular Sabbath? Well, we know externally the, the, the enemies that were overcome were all the ideologies of the world that challenged secularism, be they communism, be they whatever they were. We entered into a sea of liberal, democratic secularism. So the external enemies were overcome. The internal enemies, well, with big pharma and the pharmaceutical industry, were able to keep diseases at bay, like malaria, tuberculosis. They were confined in developing countries, never saw that kind of stuff in the West. Having a thriving economy would ensure that we would have retirement funds taking care of us, and we would be able to thrive and exist and experience life to the full. And what characterized experience life to the full? None other than the trinity of happiness pursuits. And those he outlines by saying the threefold happiness are, number one, therapeutic individualism, where you experience happy feelings. When you're experiencing happy feelings, you are experiencing life. The second is um, individualism that pertains with experiences, experiential individualism, where experiences that you go through cause these, these uh, happiness, ha happy feelings to flow out. And finally, consumerist individualism, where hyper high-value possessions also uh, provide a way for us to experience life and life to the full. Now, what has, the, what has been the church's response to this secular gospel, if you will? Unfortunately, the church to the West has in some ways imbibed of this culture, of this gospel, I should say, and has experienced the similar downfall, pitfalls, of an unfulfilled gospel pursuit, gospel of secularism. And why is that? What is it that we discovered? Another individual that I enjoy following and listening to is John Fisher. He has his blog, uh, The Catch. And uh, he wrote something recently that really resonated with me, and I'll just read it very briefly. In a 2017 article in the New York Times, Rod Dreher raises an effective argument that American Christianity is actually not true Christianity. Now, this is certainly not a new idea. Dreher holds that American Christianity is not historical or biblical. It's spiritually thin, and it has sold its soul to politics. In his article, he mentions that Christian Smith, a sociologist at Notre Dame, who has been studying the religious and spiritual lives of millennials, has come up with a new name for American Christianity. Are you ready for this? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. I'll say it again. Moralistic, 
therapeutic deism, or MTD. Moralistic therapeutic deism is a pseudo-religion, he writes, that jettisons the doctrines of historical biblical Christianity and replaces them with feel-good, vaguely spiritual nostrums. In MTD, the highest goal of the religious life is being happy and feeling good about oneself. It's the perfect religion for a self-centered, consumerist culture, but it is not Christianity. In his article, Dreyer goes on to conclude that if Christianity is to survive, it needs to chart a new course, or rather, an old tried-and-true course, not the one currently traveled by evangelical Christianity in America, indeed in most churches. And since a majority of millennials have rejected church but are still seeking spiritual answers, the scene is set for a true spiritual revolution. Given this observation, what should we as Christians be on about then? Why is our world and our church today in such a sad state of affairs? The reality is that there have been two epical shifts that have taken place in our world to date. The first one is this whole, this whole idea that we have overcome nature, we have overcome the, um, the ravages of disease, the unpredictability of nature around us. Climate change, and more recently, COVID-19 has shown us that we need to respect and coexist with nature. There are certain uh, ecosystems in play where we have to respect the boundaries of what surrounds us, and we have to uh, learn to coexist and live with nature in a way that will not allow us to be faced with these diseases and ravages that we find all around us. The second equally epical shift that took place is the, the brink of a global war that we find ourselves in today. There has been a pushback from society, from the world, where liberal dec democratic secularism is not going to rule the roost that other individuals will have uh, their say in the matter as to how this narrative is going to unfold. But I think if we look deeper, what it serves to expose is that there's an underlying problem, and that is human nature will continue to be human nature. And the underlying problem of sin and the power of sin, if left unchecked, will wreak havoc in the human race on into the future. Enter Jesus. What does he have to say about this whole issue? How do we find life in the midst of chaos? Now, when I say Jesus, I, I want to say from the outset, uh, particularly to those that are, that are uh, uh, watching from uh, a digital format, that I'm not only speaking to my tribe. I know that Jesus is a loaded term, that different people fall on a spectrum as to who Jesus was and is and what he had to say. We have from one end individuals who say he is my savior, my king, all the way to he is just an ancient, uh, irrelevant, historical, or even worse, mythological figure. And I think that if we are to listen to the words of Jesus, we have to respect where everybody is coming from 
and engage in a respectful discourse, conversation. And I hope that from my vantage point, point, sharing what I have come to experience, both from reading his words and from uh, observing his life through the narrative of scripture, and also experiencing firsthand how his life has impacted mine, that he has words of wisdom that we would do well to take heed. So moving forward, I want to look at one passage in John chapter 10. To put it into context, this was a time when Jesus was contrasting himself to the religious leaders of the day and depicting himself as the good shepherd. And in John chapter 10, verse 7, he says, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, another version says. Okay, Jesus, you got my attention, right? Life, that's what we're talking about, finding life. And he's coming with this message, I have come that they might have life. So our ears are perked, right? Were they perked at that time? Let's see, let's pick up the story and see, because you would imagine if he were to make a statement like that, as he would go from village to village in his itinerant preaching, preaching with power and authority, backing up his claims with a powerful healing ministry, calming storms, you would expect that he would cause a buzz or a stir to develop. And look what it says. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 14. He says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Surprise, surprise, large crowds. And turning to them, he said. Now imagine, he turns to the crowds. He is proclaiming truths. He is backing his claims with power as evidenced in his healing and all that he did and all that he said. And he looks at the crowds, which is what he wants. He wants individuals to follow him. And this is what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against them with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Wow. Did he pack a punch or what? Now, before we see what he has to say and how he speaks into our existence today, the tendency is to leapfrog over centuries, if not millennia, of human history, of 
church history and nestle ourselves in, in our present-day context and say, how does that speak to us? But I would have us avoid that temptation. Why don't we put on our sandals and our robes, grab our staffs, head back to first century Palestine and be part of that crowd that is listening to Jesus to understand what is it that he is actually saying by what he said. Now, to put it into context, at this point of his ministry, he is journeying towards Jerusalem. He has said from back in Luke chapter 9, he has set his face like a flint, it says, and he's heading towards Jerusalem. What awaits him in Jerusalem? There is a battle that is going to take place. And he is heading there for that battle. Things are coming to a head. Now, the individuals, the crowds that are following him are aware that there's probably going to be a battle in Jerusalem. They only have misplaced who the actual enemy is. For them, it was the corrupt religious establishment and the Roman rulers who had oppressed them for centuries. They thought these were the ones that Jesus was going to overthrow and he was going to usher this, this, this era of peace and harmony and life, life to the full. Only Jesus knew that the battle that awaited him was not with earthly rulers, but it was about principalities and powers, and namely the prince of the air, Satan himself. That's where he was going to do battle with. Now, how was he going to win that battle? And how was that going to speak into how we find life in the midst of chaos? What about his life? What about what he embodied? What was he on about? And what did he call his followers to be on about as well? Another quote I really like from N.T. Wright, um, this is what he wrote in one of his earlier books called The Challenge of Jesus, Rediscovering Who Jesus Was and Is. He says this, The work of the kingdom, in fact, is summed up pretty well in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. The whole point of the kingdom of God is Jesus has come to bear witness to the true truth, which is non-violent. When God wants to take charge of the world, to change the world, or to sort it out, or to make it right, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the poor and the meek. He sends in the broken, the mourners. He sends in the hungry and thirsty for God's justice ones. He sends in the peacemakers, the pure-hearted, and so on. That's how he accomplishes what he has set out to do. That's how he takes charge. And I think we as a church need to come to grips with this reality, that we are heaven-on-earth people. And God is calling us to resync heaven with earth. The presence of heaven indwells in us if the spirit indwells in us. And as we live this reality, we get our marching orders from heaven. And the way of Jesus is this way. How does that speak to us and specifically to what he just said in Luke 14, 25 to 35? It's interesting that he's saying that we need to hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. We are to hate our own lives. And as if he doesn't want to get specific, he says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
The crowds didn't know it at the time, but he was about to go to Jerusalem to carry his cross, right? That's what he was on about. And he was inviting his followers to do likewise, to take up their cross to follow him. And he says about the commitment that he is looking for because the stakes are so high. This is how we find life. Now I want to go into another passage and talk about something else that Jesus likened the kingdom of God to. About a couple of years ago, I had spoken about um, the mustard seed, and it was specifically from a passage that Jesus said that, he said, what should I liken the kingdom of God? And he said, it is like a mustard seed. This, by the way, these are not mustard seeds. These, these are chia seeds, but they're small. I'm not a horticulture specialist, but I figure they're close enough. They're very small. They perhaps look like mustard seeds. I've personally never seen a mustard seed, but I think it's something like this. And he says it's like a mustard seed that even though it's the smallest seed that there is, when it's planted, it grows and becomes this huge plant, this huge plant that, that overgrows everything, that permeates everything, and its branches become uh, places for birds to perch on. Now, continuing this, this metaphor of this mustard seed, listen to what he says in John chapter 12. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, drum roll. The hour has come. How is the Son of Man glorified? Listen to what he says. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. What's he saying here? What's the crux of the message? If you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. Life is found, you want to find life in the midst of chaos? Life, he says, is found in self-giving, sacrificial love. That is the way to find life. And if, if we continue the metaphor of our life being a seed, what is it that we often do with our seeds? We take our seeds and we, we clothe it with lavish, expensive clothing, we shelter it in big houses with big rooms. We put it on a plane and travel to sunny destinations so we can enjoy life. We go, we take it to fancy restaurants and we eat these, these um, gastronomic foods, these delights, all the while realizing that we think that is the way to experience life. But what is it that we are reluctant to do? We are reluctant to take our seed and to bury it, to plant it, to put it into the ground. How often do we follow the words of Jesus? How do we bury this? How do we allow it to die? Because what he is saying, you want to find life in the midst of chaos? You bury your seed and you will be blown away with what's going to come out of the ground. You think this is life that you're feeling and experiencing now? This is a parody of life. That's what he's saying. 
you will start to experience a life where that little tiny seed will become this thing that is teeming with life. But how do we learn that? How do we engage and involve ourselves in that? In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is contrasting a former way of life to the new way of life that he's inviting us to. And this is what he says, picking it up from verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. Another version says, you did not learn Christ in this way. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. In another passage in Romans 12, 2, it says, don't follow, do be conformed to the world, but be renewed in your mind. Right? This is the process that we are to engage in. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I want to go back to that phrase, you did not learn Christ in this way. It's an interesting phrase because in the Greek, literally, it says, That latter phrase, ought to ring a bell with you. Because is the verb where we get the term mathitis, which is disciple. Disciple is that word for mathitis. And here it says, You, however, literally in the Greek it says, You, however, not this way, discipleized Christ. You, not this way, discipleized Christ. Now, how critical is it to learn Christ in this way? In another passage, this is what... The, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So how is Christ formed in us to the point that we take our seed and we bury it, we plant it to find life? We're a, one of our strategic focuses here in, in, in Westview is discipleship. And no time for discussing that today. We can do a sermon series on this. But the long and the short of it is, for me, it's done in the context of relationships. If we look at Jesus, what he modeled, what he embodied in his life, and how he discipled his disciples, it was in the context of relationships. First, relationships with a triune God. God the Father who called us, God the Son who died for us, and God the Spirit who indwells us and guides us into this truth. It it takes place in the context of a relationship with the Word of God, the narrative, the storyline that causes the, the, the history of the world of creation to unfold in the way that God has deemed it to be. And it takes place in the context of community where brothers and sisters come together and as iron sharpens iron, we allow ourselves to learn the way of Christ. But what's our problem? What's holding us back from being all in? And this is my problem, because I like to say that I got this licked, I'm waltzing into finding life and it's no sweat. It is a struggle. And this is one thing that um, the writer to the Hebrews really bears out. Listen to what he says. 
in chapter 2, starting from verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Why don't I want to bury my seed? I fear death. What does this mean? He's not saying being only or merely willing to die. And if you say, yeah, I'm willing to die, then, you know, you get everything behind door number three. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you have to die. But I fear death. That means all my goals, my hopes, my aspirations, my dreams, they have to be buried to find the life that he wants me to engage in and discover. But how does this Jesus break the power And how does he free us from this fear? Peter hints at this in 1 Peter in his first epistle when he says in in chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. As we gain an intimacy with this relationship with the living God, we discover two things. That really stand out. The first is he is a good God. He is good. He is good. You can't stop saying he is good. And that translates out in he cares for you. He is good and he cares for you. And as you come to the realization, the awareness that he is a good God and that he cares for you, what does he supernaturally produce in us? And for this, as this is produced, how does that serve to free us from this fear of death? Look what John says in his first epistle, chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. He's talking about agape love, by the way. No other examples of love, but the heavenly love from above. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. It's interesting. Very often we ask, is this person born again? And we have a statement of faith to go. No. What John is saying here is, you want to see who's born again? Is he loving? That's what he says. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. How do you find life? I want to live. How do you find that life? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. You want to see love? The only way to see love is the cross. The cross has to be ever before us. That's why communion, God invited us to come to the Lord's table continuously because we are forgetful creatures. He never wants us to forget the supreme sacrifice out of love that he did for us. He is good and he cares for us. How? You have to look at the cross. There's no other way. 
Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. And here's how I answer the question, how does this drive out fear? There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So how does it free us? As we look look to the cross and we see the sacrifice of love that he did for us, we have a change of heart. Our hearts are gripped with this love. And as we receive this love, it frees us from the fear of death, from the fear of taking our seed and planting it in the ground, burying it, trusting God that life, life will emerge where the grave will not end. Life will emerge for the new age. Life will emerge that will attract many to the Savior. Amen? This is just by way of of short story. This is where this intersects with my faith and my walk. Because this is, these are all truths that we find in the Word of God. But how does it intersect with my life, with my faith? I've shared with you in the past how I've encountered a lot of struggles at my work, at my clinic, uh, with the pandemic and all the uh, resultant uh, challenges that it uh, poses and has posed. And uh, I was, in many ways, really beaten down and uh, (laughs) left by the wayside. Um, And over time, uh, with the help of many, like Basil and Kathy, who really spoke into my life, uh, I realized that this was just the enemy getting the best of me and realizing that I'm not going to stoop to the world's ways of doing things, but rather I will take a step back, allow the Lord to do his battle for me, and just walk by faith, trusting in him with whatever the outcome. I felt convicted that he was still calling me to a dark place like that, and there's dark places that abound around the world. I'm not saying that mine is any greater or any more special. But that was the place that he was calling me to. And he was inviting me to trust him and to continue to walk with him. What I discovered over the course of just these recent past few weeks was God was at work in areas that I never would have predicted. I was getting, I'll just give a couple of examples. I got a phone call from a colleague of mine who's approaching retirement age. And uh, unfortunately, he's on the verge of uh, early onset Parkinson's and he might be forced to, to sell his practice and stop working immediately. And he invited me. He wanted to go out for, uh, for dinner with me and just to talk. He knows where I stand. I, I've shared with him how I am praying for him. And it's almost like, without even pursuing it, I was pursued. I was invited, and I was affirmed to be a true friend, and, a, and, and he, he calls me like a brother. I'm like a brother to him. Um, 
there was there was another instance many many years ago. There was a a young man who was in uh, undergraduate with my son Michael. He was pursuing dentistry while my son was pursuing medicine, and he was just trying and trying. He couldn't get in, and he said, "Well, my dad's a, a dentist." And he connected me with him, and he shadowed me for a little while. I, I gave him a letter of reference. He got into dentistry. Long story short, he's about to finish his first-year residency at the Jewish. And he calls me up the other day, asked me to go out uh, for lunch again. And he said, uh, Evanch, I'd like you, uh, actually he said, Dr. Destunas, I'd like you to uh, be my mentor. Um, I've just seen the way you are, the way you conduct yourself with your patients and your staff and your colleagues. I'd like to... Uh, model myself after you and uh, if you could be my mentor. Um, I mean, stuff that I didn't uh, pursue, I, I, I totally had forgotten about. And the, the clincher for me, as you know, there's been such a shortage of staff. Uh, I've recently hired two um, dental assistants who are actually dentists in their own countries. One is from Egypt and the other one is from India. And they uh, uh, have assisted me and the one from India recently moved to Ottawa. She recently sent me a text and, and thanked me for giving her the privilege to assist me and uh, seeing what uh, a dentist ought to be like, and she continued to affirm me. The other um, a dentist who is still assisting me, because my uh, assistant is on mat leave, uh, just was, uh, she's uh, Muslim and uh, Egyptian. She speaks English very well, but I have a lot of Egyptian patients, and this one family that came, um, I was treating their kids, and they were going back and forth in Arabic, and I, I really didn't understand what they were saying, and they were getting fairly uh, animated. Um, so after they left, I, I asked her, what were you guys talking about? Was there anything about the kids or the treatment or whatever? And she said, no, they, they actually said um, that uh, you have treated their children so well and you are a great dentist and I just agreed with him that yes he is a great dentist so for me it was it was an indication from the Lord um, at that point I heard God Jesus telling me Evange I'm allowing your light to shine in a dark place introduce these people to me then get out of the way I'll take it from there and I think that's what he's calling us to. This is how we find life. We find life when we allow Jesus to have his way with us, to allow his life to shine through us. The crowds will come. He says the harvest is white. The fields are white unto harvest. He's looking for laborers who are willing to plant their seed, bury their lives, that new life would emerge. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in the midst of these turbulent, chaotic times that we find ourselves in, we come to you seeking to find life, realizing that in order to find it, we need to lose it. Lord, we willingly give our lives to you. We ask that our focus would steadfastly be on the cross that we would be gripped to our hearts with this incredible, sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus, 
that he would change our hearts, renew our minds, transform our lives into the likeness of Jesus, that we would bear witness to this truth that he is alive, that he is alive in us, that he has given us new life, new life that transcends the grave and everything that is broken and fallen in this world. And we ask, Lord, that with this hope in us, as we fix our eyes upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, would you shine brightly through us that as we move in these dark places, people would notice Jesus. For it is in strong and worthy name we pray. Amen.